You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. Sent where Jesus is going is the title of this morning's message. And I want to talk to you about understanding yourself as a sent person because it changes the complexion of whatever you're experiencing in life. I mean, right now as you're listening to me, if you're going through a particularly hard or difficult set of circumstances, understanding that God has still sent you in the midst of those circumstances can change everything that you're perceiving, your whole attitude, and can move you from a place of you know, being down and, and potentially bitter to a place of shining brightly in a dark place. I, in the first hour, the, the example that came to mind is the Apostle Paul sitting in a Philippian jail in the book of Acts. He goes to this town to start a church, and initially things are amazing, but then he gets falsely or wrongly arrested. He and Silas are thrown in prison, and at midnight they're singing. They've been beaten, they're in chains, they're in jail. It's a nasty place to be, and they're worshiping the Lord. And an earthquake comes, and the the gates and the doors are thrown open, and the jailer, whose sole responsibility was to make sure people didn't get away, thought everybody had left. And so he's about to take his own life. And Paul hollers out and says, hey, hey, we're all here, don't do that. And this becomes the moment that this man's entire life changes, the jailer, because Paul is taken home and, uh, and, and he shares Christ with this man and his entire household comes to Jesus. I remember thinking just uh, about a year or two ago, I was reading that again. I've been a believer a long time. But I was reading that again, I was thinking, you know, would I be willing to understand my circumstances the way Paul did? Would I see myself in whatever was happening to me as being sent in the midst of those circumstances because God was wanting to accomplish something with Paul? If it took all of that so that one man and his family would come to Christ, am I willing to go through that? That's the difference being sent or thinking that you're sent. Living as a sent person, that's the difference it makes. So, so do you have that conception this morning? The Lord Jesus, 2,000 years ago, walked the earth. And don't answer out loud, but just think with me a moment. Common sense, Christian common sense. What was the most important thing happening when Jesus was on earth? Well, it wasn't what was happening in Rome. It wasn't what was happening in some new culture around the planet that was growing and making buildings and and sending ships and trading and all the things that we read about in world history books. The most important thing happening was whatever Jesus was saying, whoever he was talking to, whatever kind of ministry he was engaged in, that was the most important thing that was happening on earth. And dear one, it hasn't changed. The method has changed because now he does that same work through us, through you and me, through his indwelling spirit, animating, directing, guiding, empowering us. We become his hands and feet. And the ministry of Jesus continues today. And so the most important thing happening in Raleigh, North Carolina today is what Jesus is doing. It is. And you're a part of it whether you understood it or not as a believer, you're very much a part of it. 
I love this conception of being sent through Scripture. When Dave called and told me what the theme was this summer and asked if I wanted to be a part, this conception of being sent runs through the entire Scripture. This is solid biblical stuff when you talk about being sent. The word sent is primarily describing how God gets things done. When he wants to do anything, say anything, accomplish anything, he sends somebody. John 1.6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. See at the opening of the New Testament. When Jesus thought of his own ministry, opened up the Bible in the synagogue of Nazareth, began to read, he quotes from Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me. Did you hear it? He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to those who are bound. Even Jesus had this conception of being sent. One of my favorite Old Testament stories is Joseph, who who had this dream when he was a young man that he was going to be in a place of importance in his family. And his brothers becoming jealous, you know, they, they, they abuse him, they make fun of him, they ridicule him, they sell him into slavery. He goes through all kinds of horrendous personal experiences. He had every reason to doubt God and what God was doing. And years later, when God has elevated him to the second most powerful position on planet earth at the time, as second to Pharaoh in Egypt, his brothers show up. Now, with all that power, what would you do when your brothers show up? You know? Listen to what he says in Genesis 45. Listen. And God sent me. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. I tell you what, and, and, and let me tell you this one. Years ago, I was struggling uh, as a younger man with my sense of calling because I had been called in my late teens, and I questioned my call to ministry because you grow a lot after you're a teenager. At least most of us do. And, and I matured in my understanding of the Bible and of what calling means. And as I looked back at those initial decisions that led me into ministry, I saw nothing but an immature kid making choices. And I thought, did you really call me? Because things were tough at that moment. I was at 26, 27. Things were tough in ministry at that moment. Did you really call me, Lord? And I look back, did I really know what I was doing? Was it really you? And he showed me this passage in, um, in Samuel. Saul was the first king of Israel. Before he was anointed king, he was a nobody. And one day he's out looking for his father's donkeys who have wandered away from home. So he's out looking for them with a servant. And he's about ready to give up and go home And the servant says, wait, there's a man of God over here in this other town. Let's go talk to him. So that's all Saul knows, looking for donkeys, and he's going to go talk to a man of God about where the donkeys are. The man of God was Samuel. Now listen, from Samuel's perspective, while while Saul's looking for donkeys, now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. 
And you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. He's out looking for donkeys sent by God. And sometimes we're not always conscious of our sent position. But if God's hands on your life, if the Holy Spirit lives inside you, you are sent. And all I'm going to suggest today is that you yield yourself to this marvelous life, this abundant life that he has for you as a sent person. It's fun. It's fun. I like the saying one preacher said, used to say all the time, he said, hanging out with somebody who's trusting God like that is like wiring a house with the power on. You don't know when, but something's going to happen. So what does it mean to be sent where Jesus is going? God is at work all around us, and he is sending his people into certain circumstances and certain places to connect with people. How does that happen? I'm going to share with you four things about how that happens. The first thing is to, to be sent by Jesus where he's going is to make him know, uh, excuse me, entering his unfolding plan for me and someone else. To enter his unfolding plan for me and someone else. And just like first hour, I haven't read the text yet, so let's do that. Romans 8, verse 26. Showing my age, Dave. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert or an empty place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. He, he was looking for something. He came to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. And by the way, this is from Isaiah 53, the clearest description of the cross and the gospel you'll find in the Old Testament. He just happened to be reading it. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, we welcome you here into these moments. We ask that through your spirit, you'd cause your word to come alive in our hearts. We pray you would take the truth and root it deeply in our souls. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.
So how does a person get sent to where Jesus is going? What does it mean to be sent? Four things. Here's the first one. It means entering his unfolding plan for me and someone else. There's Philip, there's Ethiopian eunuch. It means entering into his plan for me and someone else. And, and you see this in verse 29. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. There's a plan that's unfolding here. Philip doesn't know the plan. The Spirit is the author of the plan. God already has the plan. It's a specific one, and it involves Philip and one other person. And he's being sent. You also, like Philip, are a person for whom God has a plan for your life, a specific plan, and it involves you and somebody else. And, and what we want to do is understand this plan. So as I just sort of park here for just a moment, I wanna talk about God's plan for your life. And, and there are four aspects to it, four dimensions. I could say it as one sentence, but I just wanna break it down into four statements. The first part of God's plan for your life is to make him known. God wants to use you to make him known to others. We see this even in creation where it says that God created us in his image. And right away I understand my purpose, something of my purpose. Because the invisible God creating me in his image is wanting to make himself visible through me. He wants others to know, the creation to know something about who he is through us. And, and this continues throughout Scripture right down to the New Testament where now the Holy Spirit, he comes and indwells us so that through us, people can know him. We see this in Matthew 5, verse 16. Jesus said in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works. These are actions that God has in mind already for you to be doing. Spirit-directed, spirit-empowered actions they may see your good works, and as a consequence of that, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So I let my light shine in such a way so that it shines on God. But it's done through the way I live my life, things that I'm doing. There's a quality to my life that helps others to see God. So that's the first thing I would say about God's plan for your life and for mine. It's to make him known. The second thing I would say is that it's to make him known through spirit-led actions, not through self-directed actions, but through spirit-led actions. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, the Bible says, for by grace you have been saved, by means of grace, God's favor, God's favor on your life that you didn't deserve, through this gift you have been saved. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. So we don't work our way to God, right? It has nothing to do with what I do. I don't contribute anything to my salvation. I receive it as a gift by faith. God, through Christ's death on the cross, he carries away my sin and he makes it possible for me to live an entirely new kind of life. And it's done through grace not through my works. For we are his workmanship, there it is, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's so much here. 
They were prepared beforehand. So there's already a plan. It's the best possible narrative of your life. It already exists in the heart of God. You can't improve on it. Why would you want to try? And it's what God has in mind for you. And they're, they're good works, but those good works have a certain quality to them, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but you were created in Christ Jesus for good works, this plan. This is part of why God saved you, is so that these good works could show up and be carried out in your life. So created in Christ Jesus is describing this transformation that's taken place in you. That, that we know from places like 1 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creature. Literally, it means a new species of being. You know, God in creation created all the different creatures on earth. When somebody gets saved, we got a new species that just showed up, new creature. And, and you're different because the Holy Spirit comes to live inside you. And so this, these good works come out of the fundamental transformation that has taken place in your life when you trusted Christ. Spirit-directed actions. So this plan that God has for you is to make him known through spirit-led actions, number three, that reflect his beauty in and through you. When Paul and, and Jesus talk about good works, they're, they're talking about something that technically we don't always understand because we think non-Christians can do good works. And, and if you just look at the basic English language, good works, yeah, 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 everybody can do good things. They can do nice things. That's, that's fine. But there's a, there's a power to what happens when a believer does these things because it was conceived in the heart of God and, and he leads us to do it and we carry it out and so now there's a, there's a supernatural dimension to it. It's not just a good work. It's just, we just, uh, I, I need to do good things. So I'm going to go do something good over here and do something good over here. It's not that at all. Uh, let me give you a couple examples that, that I think help capture this. In the early church, if you were a widow and you trusted Christ, it means you left your primary means of support in the synagogue if you were Jewish and you went to the church, and they didn't have any systems of support early on. So they eventually developed a widow's list, a way to support women who were indigent, had no family, no way to, to, to be supported. And to be on that list, you had to meet certain qualifications. And so that's where this comes from. In 1 Timothy 5.10, talking about widows, this widow was having a reputation for good works. Now, what I haven't told you yet is that word good in the original language, some translators will translate it good, and depending on context, there's another legitimate way to transfer the word, translate the word good. And it's the word beautiful. A reputation for beautiful works. Well, what are some of these beautiful works that this, this lady needs to be about? If she has brought up children, that's a beautiful work. If she has shown hospitality, opened up her home, shared her meals with people who needed them, hospitality, beautiful. Has washed the feet of the saints, a very practical need in that day and time where you walked in the streets and stepped in everything that was in the street. When you came in the house, taking off your shoes was not enough. And she washed their feet. 
cared for the afflicted. They didn't have hospitals, so she was like a, the church nurse. She took care of people who were sick and has otherwise devoted herself to every good work. And so we look at this lady's life, and we see her doing these things as a transformed person. And she's ministering not just out of her own resources, but she's ministering out of the presence of God in her life. And people look at her and what she's doing, not just in the church, but even outside the church. They see people living like this, and they say, wow, that is beautiful. Our culture recognizes beautiful works. You see it in media. You see it in entertainment. You see something. People do something profound. It becomes a news story. And people weep. I can't believe that. What a precious story. That is beautiful. That's what we're supposed to be about. Let me give you another example. Titus chapter 3 verse 1. Paul is writing. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. What does that mean? Beautiful work. Be ready for every beautiful work, church. That's what he's saying. And what are the examples he gives? To speak evil of no one. Have you ever met somebody like that? They just don't say anything bad about anybody. You get around somebody like that, for some of us, it can be annoying. Because we may be trashing somebody's name, and they just listen to you and smile. And they say, yeah, but they have such a sweet look about them or something. You know, I mean, they just don't say anything unkind about anybody. Unfortunately, as believers, we don't have that reputation. We're not known because we never speak evil of people. It goes on and he says, to avoid quarreling. The world looks at people who don't speak evil of others and they avoid argumentation. And they look at these people and they say, these are beautiful people. I don't know why they're different, but they're just wired differently. These are beautiful people. Not quarreling. To be gentle. To, to show perfect courtesy toward all people, no matter what they look like, act like, where they're from. Amen. To show perfect courtesy to them. The world sees people who are living this way, and they say, that's beautiful. And so God's plan for your life and for my life is to make him known through spirit-directed actions that reflect his beauty in and through us, by meeting the needs of others is the fourth one. By meeting the needs of others. And, and so this shows up in our activity, our relationships. Titus 3 verse 14, at the end of the chapter we started with, and let our people learn, let me just read it and then I'll break it down. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Now, let me read this and just sort of give you the amplified version. And let our people learn is a command. Paul wrote it as a command. Let our people learn. It's present tense. means do it continuously. Let our people be continuously learning to devote themselves, to make a priority. To devote themselves to what? To good works, which are beautiful works. Spirit-directed, spirit-led, spirit-powered beautiful works. 
Only explanation for those works. And when they see the same thing in the same person over and over and over and over again, they know there's something different about this person. Devote themselves, prioritize good works. Why? This is a purpose statement. So as to help cases of urgent or vital or necessary need and not be unfruitful. Now, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole here, but you know, to bear fruit, we're supposed to abide in the vine. John 15. And so we abide in the vine by maintaining fellowship with him throughout our day, through fellowship with him, communion with him, where I develop a discipline of just sort of keeping him at the edge of my consciousness all the time, abiding in Christ. And if I abide in Christ, Jesus says you'll bear much fruit. I don't want to be unfruitful. Paul says if you give attention to these kind of spirit-directed, spirit-empowered works that come like this, you won't be unfruitful. But it's a matter of meeting needs so as to help cases of urgent, vital need. And dear one, isn't this what Jesus was doing in the Gospels? Isn't this what you see if you read the Gospels carefully? Jesus always on an intercept course with two kinds of people, seeking people who needed direction to God. That was their need. Hurting people who needed relief from God. That was their need. And it stands to reason if you and I get up every morning and say, Lord Jesus, I want to follow you. Help me be sensitive. Keep my heart aware of your presence and what you're doing. Let me see each person not as a casual encounter, but perhaps a divine moment where you have sent me into a conversation with that dear one and give me an attentiveness to ask questions, to be alert to needs that only you can meet through me. It stands to reason if I follow Jesus each day that he hasn't changed and I'm going to encounter the same kinds of people that he did just by signing up, saying, Lord, I sign up, hurting people who need relief, seeking people who need direction. And so, in a nutshell, that's a way to talk about God's plan for your life, making him known through spirit-directed actions that reflect his beauty in and through you by meeting the needs of others. And so, if I'm going to be sent where Jesus is going, because he's already going to those people, and if, he's, if I'm not listening, I believe that he is sovereign and powerful enough, he'll send somebody else. But I want to get in on the fun, don't you? And so, and so it all happens first as I enter his unfolding plan for me and someone else. But there's a second part of this. It's expecting him to lead me in steps. And again, we read in verse 29, and the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And so he sends us in these steps. He didn't, he didn't have the map. He didn't have everything that was about to happen. In the early part of chapter 8, what we read about Philip is that Philip was part of a group of people who had left Jerusalem under the very first persecution of Christians that broke out when Stephen was martyred. And Philip, who had been a deacon in the Jerusalem church, was sent we don't see that, those words till we come here, but he wound up in Samaria and there began to preach a gospel. And Samaria was, were people who ethnically were not pure Jews. They were mixed 
in race. And there was all of this racial stuff between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. Didn't matter to Philip. He goes, preaches the gospel, and hundreds and hundreds of people come to Christ. And there are supernatural expressions of the rule of God that take place in Samaria. People's lives are changed, people are healed, demons are cast out. Really cool stuff. And based on that experience, Philip could have said, I think I've learned some things now about God. I'm going to write a manual about how you do mass movements. And step one, I'm just kind of rehashing my experience. This was the first thing that happened. This was the second thing. And just sort of write a manual and kind of go sell some books and, and go around and talk about what God did at this moment in my past, and he can do this this way in your life. But the problem is, if he had done that, he would have missed the next thing God had for him. Because very rarely does God repeat himself. And, and, and he had no idea that he was leaving, when God told him to go out in the middle of nowhere, that he was leaving a mass movement. He could have assumed, I'm leaving a mass movement, I'm going to go start another one. God's going to use me to do another one. He had no idea he was being sent out just to encounter one guy. And that was okay with Philip. Because all he wanted to do was follow Jesus. And so when I think of steps, I'm thinking of, of specific, sequential actions that flow from the heart of God. And Philip understood this. And so step one, go out in the middle of nowhere. Step two, go near and overtake this chariot. Didn't bother him. He understood this about the Lord. This is, this is how he operates. Because you see, God knew that there was this man who had gone to Jerusalem to worship and was leaving unsatisfied, had questions that were not yet answered, and he needed to know, he wanted to know. So he, he signs up Philip and sends him. That's just like the Lord. I think next week they're going to use the text, Luke 15, where the father is described like a shepherd who leaves 99 to go after the one lost sheep. You know, if you're going to try to figure out what God's going to do next in your life, can I just, as a brother, tell you to give it up? Because you don't know what's going to happen this afternoon, much less what's going to happen this week for the rest of your life. We're not called to live like we have this big map in front of us. We're called to live in a relationship, and in the context of that relationship, there's specific sequential steps that are going to come from the heart of God through you. It's going to take you someplace. One of the great examples of this in the Scripture is the Apostle Paul when he's in Corinth. Corinth was a scary place, a lot of idolatry, a lot of uh, sexual sin, a lot of opposition. And I think he was concerned about his own future and about his place and what was taking what was going on. And so, the Lord appeared to him in Acts 18, verse 9, and said, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, which means he was what? Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. I'm, I'm sending you. Keep speaking. Don't be silent. Why? For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. That's good stuff. But listen to this. For I have many in this city who are my people. He's saying, in effect, Paul, you don't have to know the details. Just know I've got people here, and I've got you, and what I need you to do is just listen to me and do the next thing I need you to do. 
Paul didn't know who those people were yet. Those people didn't know who they were yet. And he's saying to you, dear one, I've got people all around you. They're my people. You don't know who those people are yet. They don't know who they are yet. But I am sending you to them. And if you'll draw near to my heart, your heart will begin to line with my heart, and I'm going to open your eyes to the needs of people around you, and I'm going to bring people across your path. I'm going to, I'm going to snag you up in conversations you never dreamed you would have. And it can start today, dear one. If it's not happening, it can start today. You just say, Lord, use me. I want to be near your heart. Use me. And so when we think about being sent where Jesus is going, it means entering his unfolding plan for me and someone else. It means this expecting him to lead me in steps. And then finally, or not finally, number three, it means obeying him immediately. Obeying him immediately. In, um, in verses 26 and 27, look at this. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. That was step one. Now, watch what he does next. And he rose and went. He obeyed immediately. We keep reading, verse 29. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. That was step two. And what did he do? Verse 30, so Philip ran to him, immediate obedience, no hesitation. And when God prompts you and you begin to recognize that God is prompting you, leading you, speaking to you, in the many ways that he does that, the most important thing for you and me to do at that point is obey immediately. Do it, do it, do what he says. Take it on, go after it. There are two words that help me kind of describe this to people who are struggling with hearing God. The first word is serendipity. Serendipity means to find something you weren't looking for. Often happens to men looking for something in the garage. Oh, I haven't seen that tool in months. You know, serendipity. You weren't looking for it, you found it. And, and sometimes God's leading comes into our life that way. The other word I would use is epiphany. Epiphany is a sudden insight. It arrives unexpectedly. You're driving down the road and God brings a name to mind. Suddenly you're thinking about somebody you haven't thought about them in weeks or days or months. Dear one, I, I, I respond to those moments. I've learned over 40 plus years of being a believer to respond to those moments because often the Lord is the one behind bringing that person to mind. Who else would do that? You know? I can't tell you how many times someone's come to mind, I've called them up, gone to meet them, gone to their house, you know, had lunch with them, whatever, because they were just put on my mind. Um, on one, one occasion, I told a story in the first hour, I want to tell a different one this hour. I was pastoring a church and I preached a series of sermons talking about knowing and getting engaged in the will of God. And so I was the pastor, and I had preached these messages. And I like to do campaigns where at the end of the sermon series, we do stuff as a church. And so we had planned some things. And, and at one point, I was praying about it, and I sensed very strongly, the Lord was saying to me, what are you going to do? And I thought, well, that's a great question. What, am I, what is my part? How do I follow up my own preaching? About that time, a couple came into my office, 
And they were, they were hurting. And I'd known them for several years. I didn't know they were hurting. They had not one, but they had two young adult kids who were addicts. They were dealing with young adult kids who were addicts and trying to manage how do you be a parent, a loving dad, a loving mom, with people who are coming at you with their hands out, and you know what they're going to do if you give them the money, or if they come home, what they're going to do in your house. I mean, well, how do you manage all of that? And they just poured it out, and they said, Don, they have a Bible study group. We can't tell anybody. We don't feel like we can tell anybody. They felt absolutely alone. And I listened to them. I talked to them a little bit, prayed with them. And I said, man, I wish we had a support group or someplace where you guys could plug in but we just have not yet had the leadership in our church step up. I always felt like if you're going to start a new ministry, leadership's going to be there. We hadn't had that. A couple days later, another couple comes in. They have a daughter who's an alcoholic, young adult daughter in her 20s. And they pour out their story, and I don't need to give the details, but you can imagine the ordeal of not knowing where your child is and feeling guilty because you didn't help them with what they wanted at a given time. You felt like you had to do tough love. and You felt like giving them money was only going to make it worse. And you didn't know what to do. You didn't know how to process that as a mom and dad. They just pour out their heart. And I get, re- get through listening to this story. And I started to give the same excuse that I'd given earlier. But I kept my mouth shut. And I just listened to them. I said, man, I'm just going to pray with you. I don't know what God's going to do. But it's clear that something needs to happen. I didn't tell them about the other couple. When they left, they or so later, I'm praying, talking to the Lord. I said, oh God, I wish we had like a celebrate recovery or some kind of support system where these people could plug in and and learn from scripture and other means how to to follow you through these these difficult life circumstances. All of a sudden, I just sense very strongly in my heart, the Lord saying, you do it. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel kind of whiny <laughs> when the Lord tells me to do something that I really don't want to do. I said, Lord, you know, I'm a pastor. We got staff, we got all these people, we got all these other responsibilities, and I got other things I'm supposed to be doing. I'm really thinking these things. Lord, I, I don't know that this is really you telling me this. <laughs> you know, all the things that we go through, but it just came back to me again and again. Throughout that day, you do it. Lord, I don't even know where to begin with these people. I'm not a trained, professional, licensed, clinical counselor type person. I just have the Word of God. (laughs) And then I began to remember he is sufficient for these things. So I called up those couples and I said, I said, spread the Word. Let's meet on Tuesday night, 7 o'clock. They showed up. Two other couples showed up. I had not a clue what I was doing. I didn't have curriculum. I just listened to them, tell me your stories. We prayed together, sent them home. And over time, that grew. Pretty soon, we had about 12 couples. And I still didn't know what I was doing. And about that time, I had been praying and asking the Lord, and he showed me a particular book that was targeted at parents who loved adult addict children. And we began using that as a curriculum because it was uh, wisdom and it had truth in it that tied directly into the scripture. 
And eventually, some of the parents, God did such a work in their lives, they were able to step in and take it over. So after about nine months, I didn't have to do it anymore. We, we saw God raise up the leadership. But it started when he said to me, you do it. You do it. You say, well, well, Don, I'm not a very spiritual person. You obviously are a mystical type person. You hear God speak to you and stuff, but I'm not that kind of a person. Listen, please don't say that. If you're a Christian today and you know Christ, and the Bible says that the moment you trusted him, the Holy Spirit came to take up residence inside of you, the very basis by which you're a born-again Christian is because the Holy Spirit lives in you. Don't say you're not a spiritual person. The Holy Spirit lives in you. The burden of leading, directing, and speaking your heart is on Him. But we need to make ourselves available. We need to say, God, whatever you want from me, the answer is yes, before we know the, the question. And so, we need to be the kind of people that once we comprehend and understand what God is saying to us, that we just say yes, and we dive in. So what does it mean to be sent where Jesus is going? It means entering into his plan, expecting him to lead me in steps, obeying him right now, and then the last thing is this, it means trusting him to meet the need. This is really important, because a lot of you are going to back away from what God's telling you because you're not understanding this point. Trust him Trust him to meet the need. In verse 29, it says, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? That's a bold question. Unless you're like an Old Testament Bible scholar. Because he's assuming, well, if the guy doesn't understand it, all I know is that this is a needy person and I've been sent and I'm going to trust him to meet the need. I may not be a Bible professor. I may not have a PhD in Old Testament. I may not know Hebrew. But I can say, what do you need? What do you need? See, we have a real, real problem in America, the Western church. We want to go to a church that meets our needs. How many times have you heard people change from church and say, because this church didn't meet our needs as a family, but this church meets our needs. The problem is Jesus isn't building a church like that. Jesus is building a church that meets the needs of the lost world. I'm not saying we ignore our needs here, but we're to do good, yes, to the household of faith, but everyone. And yes, we're going to feel inadequate in the face of human need. Yes, you're going to talk to people, and they're going to be discussing things and talking about things way above your experience level, way above your intellectual capacity to get your mind around it. That's okay. Because Jesus is enough. He is sufficient. And when you go into that conversation, you have been sent into that conversation and Jesus is going with you, and you have all the resources of the King of kings and Lord of lords available to you because you said, yes, send me. So what a difference it would make if we understood that the houses and the homes we live in are not just the places where we were born or our families were born into, but there are places and people where I was sent. 
that wherever you work, it's not a stepping stone in your career or just a way to make money and put food on your table, but you've been sent into that workplace. And your neighbors where you live, I was talking to a young man after first hour. He said they begin to increasingly realize that they've been sent into their neighborhood. God has sent them. And I don't know what you're facing as an individual, what trouble you may be having, what struggle you may be facing. You say, Don, I don't have time to minister to others. I need someone to minister to me. Well, I get you. I understand that. The Apostle Paul sitting in that prison, he would get it and understand it too. But I promise you that the difficulties that you're facing, you have been sent, not just in the trouble, but someone in your world needs you. Needs you. You're surrounded by these people. I have many people in Raleigh, the Lord is saying. I have many people in Durham, the Lord is saying. I have many people in North Carolina. And whether he sends you across the street or around the world, you don't go in your own strength and resources. Trust him to meet the need. Would you bow your heads, please, and close your eyes. We're going to close, and I thank you for your attentiveness and the time we've spent together this year, this morning. And what a, what a privilege it is for us to just consider this amazing new life that God has given to us. Just a gift, a new way to live. Never has been all on you, for by grace you have been saved. It's never been all on you. What he most desires from you and me this morning is that we would just surrender ourselves to him. You know, it's possible to be a Christian and have the Holy Spirit living inside you and live like a person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit living inside them. Paul called that being carnal. Sometimes we think a carnal Christian is somebody who's just really a bad person doing terrible things. No, 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 no. A carnal Christian is living like a lost person out of their own human resources. And he's saying, I didn't, I didn't send my spirit to live in you just as an idea. I'm there through my spirit to be for you all that I would be if I were here in person in the flesh. And so would you yield your life to him? We're going to have a time where we just, I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to let the worship team lead us in, in song. But how's the Lord speaking to your heart? Dave's going to come up afterwards and say just another word or two, but maybe as I was talking, you know, there was somebody that came to mind in this relationship, maybe it was a point of irritation for you, this person. Maybe it was just somebody you really don't want anything to do with, and suddenly you realize, <laughs> maybe God's sending me to this person. I can't pass them up anymore. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for this brother, Philip, and how his life is such a master class for us and what it means to be sent. Lord, we want to be more like him. Just ready to go whenever you say go. 
to just like a child just trust you completely and not worry about how we sound or how we look but but when you put someone in front of us father may your heart for them appear in our face our lips our words our hands our feet You have called us, Father, to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. This morning, Father, we have a fresh opportunity. You've given it to us to say, here I am, all of me. Lord, I want to love you with all that I am. Send me. In Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.